From the Annals of Thoracic Surgery and the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, welcome to Beyond the Abstract, part of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons Surgical Hot Topics series. I'm Tom Varghese, a thoracic surgeon and deputy editor of Digital Media and Digital Scholarship for the Annals. This is a podcast all about the why behind the articles and the issues in cardiothoracic surgery and healthcare, and what are the planned next steps from authors and thought leaders in the field. We're glad that you are here. If you enjoy our program, please rate our podcast on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you downloaded this podcast. Your feedback is appreciated. Please remember, the opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the individuals and not necessarily of SDS. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world. And it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program, and the residents love the high-quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. At the time of this recording, it has been close to 400 days since the start of the COVID-19 global pandemic. The pandemic has disrupted every aspect of our lives including one of the most crucial efforts for training programs, the ability and opportunity to recruit the best and brightest to the field of cardiothoracic surgery. Last year, many cardiothoracic training programs had to quickly transition midway through interview season to embrace virtual technology in order to complete the recruitment process. This year, all training programs had to robustly implement novel interview techniques as travel restrictions remained the norm. But are there best practices that programs, divisions, and departments can employ to virtually showcase their attributes and strengths? In today's Beyond the Abstract podcast, we connect with one of the leading lights in our profession, Dr. Mara Antonoff, who is the senior author on a literature review published in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery entitled, Showcasing Your Cardiothoracic Training Program in the Virtual Era. Dr. Antonoff is an associate professor in the Department of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery at MD Anderson, where she also serves as the Assistant Program Director for Education. Her expertise in the field of thoracic education is robust, including serving in leadership roles in organizations such as the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, American Association for Thoracic Surgery, Thoracic Surgery Directors Association, and Women in Thoracic Surgery. She holds editorial board positions for the Annals of Thoracic Surgery, the Journal of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery, CTSNet, and the Journal of Thoracic Disease. We connect with Dr. Antonov to explore the why behind the project, the reflections of the path navigated by training programs during the pandemic, best practices for engagement in the virtual domain, and advice on how program directors and programs should embrace the opportunities to innovate and engage on social media. Join us today as we go beyond the abstract. I am thrilled to be joined by one of the emerging leaders in our field, uh, Dr. Mara Antonoff. Uh, Dr. Antonoff, uh, thank you for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Varghese, for having me. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, so um, 
full disclosure for our listeners, uh, Mara is one of my favorite human beings in the world. So you can imagine that if you, if you see an extra sense of warmth that comes through this podcast, uh, I'm not apologizing for that. <laughs> Well, the feeling is mutual, Tom. I'm really glad to be here. Well, I appreciate it. Well, so let's uh, dive into this uh, phenomenal article that uh, you've, uh, you and your co-authors have written uh, called uh, Showcasing Your Cardiothoracic Training Program in the Virtual Era. Um, we know that the pandemic now has been uh, in existence for over a year um, at the time of this recording. Uh, Dr. Antonoff, tell us how this idea came to be. Uh, what, what was the origin story of this project? Sure, absolutely. Um, so our program, like many of the other programs uh, interviewing candidates last year, had to adapt. And for us, for the interview season in 2019-2020, we actually did have one in-person session, and then we had one that had to become virtual. And as you know, when you have more than one interview session, you want very much to try to make things as equal as possible for all candidates. You try to equalize the experience so that someone doesn't have a better shot or a different impression or a different experience. And that's true when you have multiple in-person uh, events or multiple uh, virtual events. And when we had one virtual and one live, we really wanted to do everything we could to try to equalize those two experiences. So for the virtual session, we had created a, um, a virtual tour to try to share not only the actual uh, buildings and the structures and the different locations, but a lot of the culture and the other elements of conversation that come through during the traditional tour that happens when one is actually on site and visiting the program. And after we created this tour, um, it was felt to be a good example of how one could really show their program to prospective trainees when they're doing virtual interviews. And so I was asked to give a talk at the TSDA virtual session um, regarding how we could showcase our program um, during this virtual era. And so I was able to share not only some of our own experiences, but some of the things that I learned from really searching the literature, seeing what other programs, even other specialties had done to showcase their training programs during this era. And after I had a chance to do that, that research um, for this TSDA presentation, it actually turned into a great project to propose to the analyst of thoracic surgery. That's a great origin story right there. Um, and so was that a surprise to you to find how much information was actually out there when you did the, the literature search? Um, I, I was surprised. We, you know, we certainly know in this pandemic era, people are doing a lot of writing and a lot of publication about how to manage and navigate the pandemic. But I was surprised that there was quite a bit out there already about how to conduct virtual interviews. I suspect that some of the uh, prevalence of this literature in other specialties outside of cardiothoracic surgery just have to do with the difference in uh, the interview cycles and the different seasons for different specialties. So as I mentioned for us in the 2019-2020 um, uh, season, we had one live and one that was virtual. And I know some programs had theirs entirely live in cardiothoracic surgery, some had theirs entirely virtual, but there's certainly other specialties on different cycles where they may have had their everything converted to virtual an entire year earlier than our specialty. And so they had the opportunity to get um, some more literature and experience under their belt regarding how they navigated these, these situations. And, and I'll be honest, that was kind of one of the things that really appealed to me for this particular project, because Many of us have shared our, this is what we did type of story, but the project that you and your co-authors actually engaged in was a little bit different. And correct me if I'm wrong, 
what you really did was you anchored it in the literature search. You know, you did the Medline search. You looked at uh, the, you know, the, the phrases, virtual interviews, kind of supplement that. And then on top of that, you got additional expert consensus opinions. Is that a great way of framing how this article emerged? It is a great way of framing it, Tom. That's, that's pretty much exactly what we did. And we felt that that was an opportunity to share our lessons learned, but also those lessons learned from other folks as well, to, to try to really put forth some best practices and ideas for what people can do in, in this virtual era, which right now we're facing because of a pandemic, but we don't know what the future holds. And it, it may be possible that in the future, all interviews will continue to be virtual for financial reasons, for public health reasons, um, for a variety of, of other reasons. But you know, we also know that this virtual type of interview also levels the playing field for people who may not be able to afford lots of plane tickets, for people who you know, may not be able to take multiple time off of their clinical responsibilities or away from family responsibilities. So perhaps this type of virtual interview process will continue well into the future. I can say that even before the pandemic, we had a really limited experience with a few virtual interviews for members of the uh, US military who were deployed during the interview season. And we did everything we could to accommodate them with Skype interviews, but it wasn't as well orchestrated as the types of large scale virtual experiences that we're now offering people. And um, since this is still a relatively new topic, a new area, the fact that we can pull together our collective knowledge, not just in cardiothoracic surgery, but among you know all educators and, and really work together to figure out how we can uh, showcase our programs and, and give as much information as possible to the prospective trainees, um, you know, this was a great, great advantage. Well, well one of the things um, uh, that really st stood out for me was even the way that you framed the writing of this manuscript. So for example, one of your headings, literally the heading was innovative way methods of showcasing your program. It's about the entire year, not just a day. Can you expand a little bit about that frame shift in terms of how traditional interviews were in contrast to the virtual, specifically on that uh, aspect, that tension point between reflection of the entire year versus just a single day? Yeah, absolutely. You know, trying to recreate the interview day through a virtual experience really should convey all of the information that's provided during an in-person interview. Um, and, and so, of course, we want to try to convey all the things that you normally hear about, you know, the rotation schedules, opportunities for research, the institutional history, the benefits, all the faculty profiles, all that information. Um, but, but the other thing is that a huge source of information for applicants comes from those one-on-one -on -one interactions with current trainees through meals and tours. And these honest encounters are, are really a vital component of the interview process for applicants to really understand the programs. And we recognize that the the formalities of a virtual interview really limit all of those casual interactions. And so we really feel that by creating a, a digital footprint and using the virtual uh, platform as a way to share everything about your program on a daily basis, this is really a good way for people to get to know your program. So by having a social media presence, by having a strong web page, by sharing your educational activities in a webinar format so that folks who may not be part of your institution, but are prospective trainees can see how you're educating your trainees. That's really the way to help them understand what it would be like to be a trainee at your program. You're not gonna be able to recreate all of those casual conversations 
in the moments in kind of the breakout rooms during a virtual interview. But this is an opportunity to really take advantage of the technology and a lot of the skills that we have been honing for the last several years. Um, you know, for folks who may know of our other relationships, Dr. Varghese and I have worked together very closely on a lot of digital efforts, working on things like blogs and tweet chats and um, ways to really communicate, disseminate information and share with you know, individuals what's going on in our institutions and in our specialties, um, you know, the accomplishments of our colleagues, our trainees, our mentors and mentees through all these other avenues. And by having a robust website with a ton of information, by having a good social media presence that explains the accomplishments of the faculty, the simulation sessions, the educational activities, this really can give the trainees a true flavor of what's happening at that program maybe even better, actually I would argue definitely better than what they would get if you have no information out on the web, no social media presence, you know, a, a minimal website, and they come to your program for three days, they're getting a snapshot view. But recognizing that they can't get that snapshot view, if you create a really broad, robust experience by sharing everything through your, your digital platforms, they're gonna get more information, learn more about what it's like to be a part of your training program than they would get even if they came there for a couple of days. No, that, that's absolutely a brilliant summary. Um, so what, for our listeners, what Dr. Antonoff just articulated, um, you can also see effectively captured in table one of the manuscript. Uh, the manuscript, the table itself, the title is called Strategies to Modernize Fellowship Recruitment Through Virtual Methods. And the specific categories underneath include uh, what, what she referenced right now about expanded training program websites, virtual educational content, virtual tours, of course, which helped the origin story of how this project is started in the first place, social media presence and uh, online externships. I wanted to take a moment um, because you had mentioned that, uh, and obviously we're both biased because we believe in this, but the digital presence. Um, skill sets for program directors and programs to survive or thrive in the years ahead. Your thoughts on social media presence and that being a learned skill set or a leadership skill that program directors should embrace. How do you think we're doing overall and where do you think there's room for improvement in the years ahead? You know, that's a great question. Um, you know, as you know, historically, there has been a lot of reluctance for folks who are busy clinicians and educators and leaders to make time to learn this skill set. I would argue that there are enormous bodies of resources to help leaders and educators get better at, at these skills. And most of our institutions have folks who can specifically train you how to use social media. It can sometimes be where the leaders are understanding how to do it, but they don't necessarily have to be the one who's doing all of the posts. So um, if you're able to create a social media presence with an official page from your official handle from the training program, and you can have an administrative assistant who can you know, periodically post, here are our trainees you know, doing a simulation lab, here are our trainees at Journal Club, you know, look at this great poster that was presented at this meeting, at this digital meeting or virtual meeting by our trainees, um, or come to our program, you can work under the expertise of these outstanding master surgeons who are teaching this course. Anything you can do to promote what's actually going on is really important. And there are a number of different pathways, a, a, a program director, can learn that skill set. The associate program director can do it. You can have, as I mentioned, administrative assistants who may have the, the um, skill set to navigate the digital platforms. And you still need 
the leader, the program director to feed that information of what's important. And so in that essence, I feel that they still need to have the skill set to understand what's going on in social media, even if they don't choose to make the post themselves and don't want to count the 280 characters in a tweet. You know, I think having, having them feeding the information and saying, please tweet this. Here's a great photo I took in the OR with the trainee. Please tweet this. It can, can be important. Um, I know a number of folks have argued that people who are really busy don't need to learn this. That being said, we've seen some phenomenal social media activity in recent months during this pandemic from leaders who are in their not just fourth and fifth decades of life, but sixth, seventh, eighth decades of life doing great work in the area of social media because they recognize that just as much as people will line up to watch them on a podium, people will flock to their tweets because they know that their words of wisdom are really important. And I think this is a skill set that people can learn, just as anyone can learn dragon dictation or you know anything else we've had to figure out to be clinicians or educators in the modern era. I think this is a, an easily transferable skill. And as the apps get better and the websites get better, everything is very intuitive and easy to use. I think that there's not much rationale for at least choosing one person or a few people from every program to work on that social media presence. That's, that's a brilliant perspective. Uh, and one, one of the things that um, kind of comes naturally to mind is wh where do you think this is going to go? I, you know, we've faced a lot of challenges um, through this pandemic, uh, which uh, fortunately or unfortunately has led to a lot of acceleration of things, which we didn't think would be happening as fast, as you correctly pointed out, through the interview process, telehealth. What parts of this new virtual world interview process do you think will remain uh, in the years ahead? Or is it too early to tell? I think it's too early to tell whether the in-person visit will go away completely. I think the opportunity to participate in an interview process without an in-person visit may be optional for quite some time, because even if programs revert to traditional interviews, I think there will be recognition that some people may be prohibited from traveling for a wide variety of reasons. But ultimately, I think the hidden benefit that we've seen that is really hard to deny is how much this promotes diversity and inclusivity. And to turn away the opportunities that have been created by allowing people who may be 39 weeks pregnant to interview by allowing people who may be deployed, people who may have financial reasons, health reasons, you know, a wide variety of reasons. Perhaps they, you know, they're in a small training program that they have every, you know, every fourth night home call or every other night home call such that they can't leave, leave the, leave town, trying to create equal opportunities for people, you know, so that people can progress and, and it can be more of a meritocracy is really important. And so some of those aspects of, of promotion of diversity and inclusivity, I think have to stay. I think the skills that we've learned in showcasing our programs through all these other forms of media are going to stay because people have learned the skills and the programs that continue to showcase their programs throughout the whole year, not just on a single day, are going to be much more appreciated than the programs who keep it a secret until that one day. I, I think it's gonna be hard to attract people um, if you're not providing that information all the time, like some of the programs are doing. That just becomes something that people are, are getting very, very good at, at showcasing it. And, and so if you're the one program that doesn't do it, it's going to become a challenge. And so whether the, the interviews themselves become a hybrid between a virtual and in-person experience or continue long-term, 
as virtual, I don't think we know the answer, but the benefits that we're getting um, out of the option and the opportunity for dissemination of information in this fashion is, is just uh, very hard to let go. Yeah, and then I think that you also uh, astutely pointed out that one disadvantage to this approach is the same top group of applicants with stellar records are applying everywhere and potentially could be filling up all the spots and that programs really need to be careful to make sure that there's some balance in the pool of people that they're interviewing, correct? Yeah, absolutely. One of the hypotheses that, that has come out of, out of this virtual era is that if people have the ability, because they don't have to take time off of their you know, call schedule and they don't have to fly to a million places and there's no budget, that the same top candidates might, as you alluded to, take all of the interview spots and that there won't be spots left. And the, why is that a problem? Is that each of them will only take one training spot and a lot of really good programs could go unfilled if they don't interview the right people. And the advice that's been given, you know, appropriately so, is that programs should continue to offer interviews to the same types of candidates they typically would have interviewed in the past and to not, you know, change, dramatically change the, what, the, what their interviewees look like um, just because they have the opportunity to interview a different group of folks. I know that's hard to hard to force people to do. Um, and I guess the match is the only thing that will, will tell us that. And I think if some programs fail to match, maybe the, there will be a lesson learned there. Yeah, and it's a, it's a great perspective. And so for our, our listeners, at the time of this recording, um, we just finished the match for this year's integrated thoracic residency. Um, and I'll just throw out some stats here. This is exactly what Dr. Antonoff was talking about is uh, for this year's 2021 match for integrated thoracic residency, there were 129 applicants for 35 programs and 46 positions. And uh, both of us uh, uh, right now, both Dr. Antonoff and I are uh, dealing with traditional fellowship uh, interviews right now as we record this. And it seems like it's very competitive again, correct? Oh yes, absolutely. We've been phenomenally impressed with with our applicants, and it's going to be. We'd be lucky to train any of the people that we interviewed, and and we yeah. we. That's why I think more than anything, we often feel like once they've gotten an interview, they've already set the bar very high, and that's the important right. interview is to really, um, to really find out who's going to be a good fit. And so I, I guess another point that I would make is that it's not just trying to share the culture and the social aspects, the, you know, the depictions of kind of pride, appreciation, collaboration, all of that stuff through your, you know, your casual interactions, your social media, all these other things. I think it's important to choose your interview questions to try to find out who's going to be a good fit. And I will say that historically interview questions have focused on a lot of, well, I see this line on your CV. Can you tell me more about it? Having people rehash their previous accomplishments is not going to make the most of that really limited virtual time you have. And so my personal view, and this is a whole nother topic of a potential additional paper, <laughs> is that I really think that we should be focusing interview questions on um, topics that explore experiences that clarify things like team dynamics, um, emotional intelligence, grit, perseverance, perseverance, resilience, um, you know, uh, general team behaviors, um, things like humility. I think those are the types of things that we should be exploring 
in interview questions to find out who's going to be a good fit because there's not going to be the opportunity to walk around the hallway and have lunch and see who chats well with whom, you know, at the happy hour. It's, it's more, how can we figure out in this brief moment among all of these outstanding applicants who have phenomenal CVs and great letters of recommendation, who really jives with us? Who's got the personality that is going to seem right when we're operating together or the person I want to hear from when they call me at three o'clock in the morning? Yeah, that's a, as, as you said, that's probably a whole uh, another area of uh, potential collaborations. And uh, uh, for our listeners, stay tuned. I, I'm, knowing Dr. Antonoff, I'm quite confident that there's probably a couple other projects <laughs> that are <laughs> percolating in her head right now. There may, sure. there may be, but I think those are all things to think about when we when we talk about the conversion from in-person interviews to virtual interviews. You know, how, yeah. how can we maximize the, the limited amount of time that we have for interaction? I, I think the other interesting aspect of all of this is um, who's to tell that what we're learning through this process may end up influencing the way we recruit traditional faculty as well. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff that we can learn from the virtual era for fellowship interviews that could potentially extend to other faculty appointments, don't you think? I do think so. I, and it may be hard to get someone to move for a job that's more of a ideally a long-term endeavor without an in-person visit. But the idea of showcasing the program every single day, I think is incredibly important. You know, it, that is gonna be how you show what you're really about, what your culture is. And that stems in terms of, you know, uh, faculty's pride in each other's accomplishments to the way that they promote the face of their program. Is it a, diver a diverse program? Is it a family-friendly program? Is it one where they are excited about each other's accomplishments? All of those elements that one puts forth really, really shares the culture of a program. And um, I think that's more how we're going to learn about anything than, than we have in the past. I mean, it's every other field, every other way that you pick something important in your life has evolved in a much more modern way. If you want to buy a new house, you don't just see the listing and then go walk around in the room. You're like examining every single picture on the listing to be like, oh, I don't like that faucet. I don't even want to go look at that house. Or, you know, I wonder if that window overlooks the neighbor's backyard. You're trying to figure out all that stuff when you're looking on the app before you even go to the house. And you may not go there if, if it doesn't have the vibe that you feel. So why would we not have that kind of information out there for a job that you're going to take? Definitely for a job you're going to be taking for anywhere from two, three or six years, but for a job that might be, you know, the next stepping stone of your career or, or maybe even longer. I think we should have all that information out there. Um, I laugh when we think about this stuff. I, I, I have, um, you know, certainly some nieces and nephews and, and cousins, children who are, who are looking at going to college and they talk about all the stats that they find online and uh, my kids have asked me like how I decided where I wanted to go to college. And I tried to explain to them that, you know, we had America online and not like a lot of great information to find stuff on the web about different colleges. So I called several phone numbers and requested some booklets that were sent to my house. And we didn't really, you know, have the financial means to visit places that were out of state. So I paged through the booklets and I was like, this one looks good. I'll go there. And as it turned out, you know, it worked out okay. And it hasn't really held me back in my, my subsequent education, but we have I, I, I'm laughing because I'm like, was I, was it like stone tablets? <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what I was doing way back Booklets, so I love it. So I mean, we <laughs> booklets and we flip through them. And now we have the ability to share so much information, you know, for, for people to really have a really a great breadth and depth of knowledge about these programs and, and really know where, where they're going to be most successful and, and be able to accomplish their goals and fit in well. 
Well, Dr. Antonoff, you and I could be talking hours about these topics. Kudos to you and your co-authors. I mean, yet another stellar product that was published in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery. Um, obviously, it goes without saying, I encourage every one of our listeners to take a look at this manuscript. Uh, but really, as Dr. Antonoff correctly pointed out, this is an opportunity to stimulate conversation and thoughts about how we can improve things for the interview process in general for the years ahead. Uh, and with that, Dr. Antonoff, thank you. On behalf of uh, the Beyond the Abstract podcast, thanks for taking the opportunity to connect today. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to have had the opportunity to chat with you. Join us next time as we continue to explore and debate issues beyond the abstract, part of the Surgical Hot Topic series. You can connect with the Annals of Thoracic Surgery online at annalsthoracicsurgery.org or on Twitter at Annals Thor Surge.